0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Oh Well, good morning, C4 family. Oh, Killing me. Good morning, C4 family. There we go. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. And we want to say happy Thanksgiving to everyone watching online today, for the American audience that is deeply, deeply distressed. No, we don't have it wrong. We have it right. You have it wrong. We, we harvest our things before they're frozen. So just to say to our American friends, uh, happy Thanksgiving uh, to you this morning. And so uh, we gather this weekend as family and friends uh, to celebrate and to be thankful. So raise your hand if you've done Thanksgiving already. You did it yesterday. Okay. D- uh, raise your hand if you're doing it today. Uh, doing it tomorrow. All right. Turkey, raise your hands. Ham. Goose, no, whoa, goose, old school, okay, very interesting, yeah, this is a weekend that we gather as a nation, and obviously our American friends will do it in a month or so, where we we stop and, and we gather, hopefully with family and friends, and we're thankful, and yet we all realize, and we as elders this morning prayed about it, that when we gather, even, you know, through the squash, God forgive us, and other things, um, it's also painful because families aren't perfect. You can say amen at this moment. Um, it's just true, and it's interesting that I'm going to speak on what I was going to. I'm going to speak on today because it wasn't planned this way, uh, connected to Thanksgiving. But today I'm going to preach on what we can believe God for in our church family, and in our own personal families. Like Pastor Dave said, we're in. This year, this theme this year is Believe. And specifically, this series that we're starting our year with is called Believe. And and we've been walking through the, the essence, the foundation of our movement as Christians. Week one, we talked about how we believe in, in God, and we walked through that extensively. Last week, we, we actually walked through that we believe in the good news, that by Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection... He's taken our deserved wrath. He's canceled our sin. He's overcome death. He's broken the devil's positional hold on us. And he's promised us eternal life. Anyone thankful for that this week? I sure am. Yet last week I was not able to preach or speak to the next step. I was not able to talk about the so what, that is, after you've believed, after you've come into relationship with Jesus, after you've moved from knowing about God or believing about some God out there to actually knowing God through Jesus, then the next question is this, what do we believe is next? What does living in the life we live in now look like as we wait for the promise of not yet called eternal life? As we hope for things in our family, and as we hope for things in this church, the question is, can we sum it up? And the answer is yes. We can sum it up in one little uncomfortable yet blessed word, lordship, lordship. Think back to last week, I mentioned it was 81 days to Christmas, and some of you booed me, and then I got Facebook saying I was wrong, it was 87 days, so fine, it's 81 today, just so you got it. And I use this verse that the angels declared over the shepherds. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Now catch this. This is so significant. You see, you can't meet Jesus just as Savior. You have to meet him as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. He's a three-for-one special, not one. To encounter the living God truly, you have to say, yes, He's our Savior. Yes, we're thankful. And yes, He's Messiah. But He also is Lord, not only of the universe, but of us. But here's the key thing. You would never give yourself willingly or fully to be a slave to someone else because lordship means He's master and we're slave. You would never do that unless you first had encountered His saving love and His character. If you've truly encountered the Jesus of Scripture, you willingly will give yourself as a slave. You will willingly embrace lordship because you have experienced his love. If you have not experienced his love, you will join a rebellion against him because you will want no one to own you. But if you've met him, you want him to lead you. That is why the Christmas story is so profound It is the hope for your family, it is the hope for this church, it is the hope for our world. Because when people encounter the living Jesus, they experience his love, they find out he is Messiah, his character is unparalleled with anyone else, and we cry out, yes, you can be my Lord. And yet, it's a struggle. Yes, we believe not only in the existence of God as Christians, but a revealed and personal God. Yes, we believe in the good news that God invites us back into relationship with him through his risen son, Jesus. But then the next step has to be that we declare and that we say we must willingly cry out that we believe in the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Not some abstract idea, not some doctrine we read about in some textbook. No, we as Christians believe in the reign and rule of God in our personal lives, which is the evidence that we have embraced the good news. What did Jesus promise when we accept him as Savior and Lord? A life of rules? A life of duty? A life of boring drudgery? No. When Jesus showed up and he was walking around 2,000 years ago, this is what he declared, not about eternal life, but life in the now if you embrace him. He rightly declared in John 10.10, this is what the devil will do and this is what I will do. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy But I have come that they may have life and life in the full. I will give you a different life, a life of hope and purpose and difference. But don't miss this this morning on this Thanksgiving. This full life, you may read it in your translation, abundant life, is connected to lordship. Jesus is the leader, Jesus is king. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is master. And we must be willing slaves to him. That is where joy and this full life is found. What did Jesus say? I preached this last year. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus invites us this way. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm, I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We joked last year that we're a bunch of urbanites and we have no clue what a yoke is. We think about eggs. No, a yoke is what you put over animals to direct them as they plow a field. See, Jesus this morning on this Thanksgiving by his spirit promises us, by his word promises us the deepest rest for our soul but it's connected to his yoke. If we won't yoke ourselves to Jesus, Christian, you will be yoked by sin, lost dreams, broken relationships, guilt, shame, dead religion, lies, or you'll yoke yourself to yourself and you'll go in circles. The lie that we are independent is just that. It's a lie. We always will serve somebody or something else to find rest means to say yes to Jesus' yoke, which means the lifelong journey of letting Jesus take over more and more of our beliefs, our attitudes, our money, our relationships, our children, our families, our church views, our job, everything. Don't we pray it? And this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What next? Oh, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, in my personal life, in my family life, in this church, in this region, in this world, as you already see it in heaven. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are declaring you want someone else to rule your life. Do you pray it or do you believe it? The battle for this is fierce. Even after meeting Jesus by grace and mercy alone, The battle for us to willingly be okay with growing slavery to Jesus is difficult. Personally, that is why for the last year and a half, I've been praying for myself and my personal family and for our church family, for God to bring a a real, uninvented revival. That God would show up in such power that, that we've never experienced. Now why? Because when God shows up among his people in real power, lordship is welcomed and the joy and love of jesus goes through the roof and families change and church changes forever we don't want to see for church appear godly but deny heaven's power we want to be godly and be filled with unnatural power we're believing as a church that god has promised us prompted us given a word to our church that there's a season coming where Jesus will show up in such power that the things of God and the lordship of Jesus among us would be wanted, seen, accepted, desired, and lived out. Some believe, but many do not. All Christians, in theory, want the lordship of Jesus, but the fantasy or fleeting thought about it is not good enough. Some of us, if we're honest on this Thanksgiving, are dreading going to Turkey. And in our prayer times, we're crying out for God to show up in the lives of our family because if God does not show up, there is no out. Some of us are praying for God to show up right across this whole church because if He doesn't, things will just be as they are. But at the heart of our conversation today, about what God wants for your family, what God wants for our church, as he introduces and reintroduces the theme of lordship, it comes down to one thing, belief or unbelief. As I shared in our believe video last week, the question before our church and the question before your family this morning is not whether we believe in the God we believe in, but whether we actually believe he's going to do what he says. Now, if there's one passage that brings home all the themes that we're going to deal about today, if there's one passage that brings home all the emotions and hopes and dreams that we have for our family and our church, if it also, if there's one passage that deals with the reality of sin, blindness, doubt, and also cold-heartedness, if there's one passage where everything is honest about our condition in its mixed, messy sense, it's First Kings 18. I've got a Bible there, physically or virtually. I'd love you to turn there right now. You online, please do the same thing. If you haven't downloaded an app yet we encourage you version here y-o-u version it's a fantastic uh, app you can use we've got wi-fi in here so you can connect on let me give you a little bit of background of first kings 18 god's people the hebrews the israelites have gone through a civil war family is not good at this moment israel is now a nation in the north judah is a nation in the south At this moment in time, the northern kingdom is ruled by a king named Ahab, and he has made his queen Jezebel. She's a Phoenician. She's not of God's people. She's a domineering and a resourceful woman, and she has introduced the worship of Baal. At first, her goal, she said, was to introduce worship of Baal and God, Yahweh, at the same time, and everyone would get along. But the true thing is, she wanted to supplant God with her God, and if you read the whole passage later today, she begins to systematically execute any person who called themselves a prophet of the living God. In this period, it was a terrible decline of worship. A slow but willing rejection of the people of God towards his love and his lordship. And remember, and I want to make this clear as I get going this morning. These people were God's people. Today's message is not about those who do not know yet. That's for the next two weeks. This message is for those who are genuinely close or those who know. If you read First Kings 16, it's a very difficult and brutal time. It says that Ahab actually set up an altar for Baal in Samaria and he also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than all the kings before him in Israel. Now, i got to tell you, if you read all the listed sins of the kings before Ahab, that is an unbelievably damning statement. And so here it is. The king of God's people and all the people themselves follow him and this new queen and they begin to sin The slander, this extramarital affair with another god was terrible, evil, violating everything they were called to hold dear. In a series of subtle moves that turned out to be, well, outright rebellion against the lordship of God, the people of God got dark and dim. His wife and him promoted and and welcomed and invoked the presence of this demon god named Baal, which translates, everyone ready? Lord. Huh. Huh. This God was the head of the Canaanite pantheon of deities. He was called the God of dew, the God of rain, the God of fire from heaven. He was known for throwing lightning from heaven. He was called the God of thunder. His consort, his semi-queen prostitute, was Asherah. She's called the queen of heaven. And now the people of God, the people of God, systematically begin to worship Asherah and Baal. Here's just a reminder on this thanksgiving. These are the people that God saved, right? Yes or no? These are the people that have the Ten Commandments. These are the people that have experienced the first part of the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord your God, have saved you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I have redeemed you. You're my children. I love you. We're in a relationship. You are a unique nation, and all the nations will see you through me and me through you. First command, don't have any other gods before me. Why? I'm a jealous God. Why? Because I'm married to you and I love you. Don't bow down or make any idol of any sort. And now we come. And these people, on a so-called day of thanksgiving, are totally unthankful. They thought that they could aid the power of nature by practicing magic. Sympathetic magic. Sexuality was very significant in this cult. Orgies were done in religious centers. There was this thing called the fertility of the hills, where you would go, especially as men, to sleep with religious prostitutes on all the top hills in Israel at this moment because you thought through the act of religious sex you could secure your crops for the year. Human sacrifice, burning of incense, violent and aesthetic experiences, ceremonial acts of the people of God, kissing and bowing down at these altars and, and preparing of sacred cakes. All of these people are doing this. They invoke Baal, the God of rain and dew and thunder and food. So the true God of heaven and earth says, fine. I'm willing to show you that I still love you, but I will do it in a difficult way. I will show you that that yoke brings death and my yoke brings life. The story begins the chapter before in 1 Kings 17.1. Elijah, the prophet, shows up, a tishbite, and he says these words to the king. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Whom I serve, there will be, notice it now, no dew and no rain in the next few years except at my word. You think Baal really is the God of dew and rain? Watch this. Three years pass, there's no dew in the morning, no rain, famine is now everywhere. The brooks have dried up, the rivers have run dry, there's no rain, no food, the stench of death is everywhere, carcasses and skeletons of lost animals. And as we all know in this modern culture, every time famine strikes, the young and the old die first. But despite three years of this, the people of God will not return to the love of God or his lordship. Now to 18 verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word came back from the Lord to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Now just stop as we get going. Is that a promise? Yes or no? I will send rain, he says. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab and the famine was severe throughout Samaria. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to them, is that you? You troubler of Israel? Finally, Elijah, you have the guts to show your faith after three years. I wish my wife had had killed you like the rest of these prophets. You troubler in Hebrew means you snake, you asp. You snake in the grass. You did this to us. People are dying. Children are dying because of you, Elijah. You are the biggest problem we have in God's people. You made our lives a living hell. I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you, you and your family sure have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and you've followed the Baals. Don't blame me for what's happened. You're the one who's done this. You're the one that keeps saying that you can play both sides of the fence. You've forgotten all that God's done and who he truly is. And don't don't you remember? God is a jealous God for his own glory and for his people. And you've yoked yourself to Baal and you've thrown the Lord's loving yoke off. This ends today, he says. Happy Thanksgiving. Hmm. Verse 19, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring, by the way, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who, who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring them all. Let's see who God really is. I challenge your gods, and I challenge you as the king. I challenge your your queen, if you could call her that, and I challenge all 850 priests. I challenge the political and the religious and the sociological worldview of this whole nation. This is profound. Elijah is honest. He's not afraid. He trusts God in his word. His faith has, has challenged before. It's been questioned. It's been tested. He's doubted, but it's honest. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, you follow him. But if Baal is God, you follow him. I love this. And the people folded their arms. Can you see it? And said what? Nothing. Now the question is given, the needed question is given, I want to say this, to God's people, how long will you remain lukewarm, hesitate, vacillate, how long will you limp between two opinions? And the people sat back, compromised, folded their arms and said, we'll see who wins and that's who will follow. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Fine, get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. They get first pick. And let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, and I won't set fire to it. Then verse 24, then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of my God, the Lord. And the God who answers by, do you notice this, fire. It can be translated lightning. He is God. Then all the people finally talk and said, That's good. Now, I want to remind you that Baal is the rain god. He's a specialist at throwing fire and lightning from heaven. All the pictures we have of him is actually this. They had the numerical advantage. They've got at least 450 prophets, probably 850. The king and queen are against Elijah. The people are just sitting back in unbelief and divided. They say nothing. And by the way, don't miss this Baal's crew gets to go first. So if actually fire falls from heaven, then Elijah doesn't even get a chance, God doesn't even get a chance, and he's going to be killed. This is like doubling down in Vegas with your life. So they took the bowl. The bowl given to them, they prepared it, as they did. Then they called out in the name of Baal from morning uh, till noon, Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted, but... There was no response, and no one answered, and they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. See, this is like hitting a bull. This is bad, unless, of course, you know who you're following. Shout louder, he said. Surely Baal is a god. Verse 27, perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or or traveling. You know, he's in Aruba right now. What's going on? Uh, Maybe he's asleep. Uh, Maybe he needs to be awakened. Guys, maybe he's meditating. Or napping, or maybe he's gone hunting, or maybe your God's on a journey. Now, I love this. The word busy actually translates to this. Maybe your God is on the cosmic toilet, just saying. (laughs) He actually says to them, maybe your God is going to the bathroom, and just, that's more important than you right now. And then he's really saying this. See, you believe that Baal is all-knowing and ever-present. So actually, the problem maybe isn't with him. Maybe it's with you. Maybe what you're doing isn't impressive enough. 28, they shout louder and slash themselves with swords and spears. As was their custom, until blood flowed at midday, they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of evening sacrifice. These priests would have circled this altar. I studied it this week and would have gone in faster and faster circles. This isn't just madness. This is liturgical madness. They would have had long hair that they swept across the dust. And then at the high point, the priest, one of the key ones, would begin to bite himself. And then Moors would begin to bite their own arms. And then they would take knives and begin to cut themselves. Uh, Cutting is not a new thing. And then they would begin to have their blood flow because actually in their mythology, Baal himself had cut himself. There's a whole story behind it. And they get more and more frantic. And then suddenly they break out in tongues and people begin to prophesy and they are invoking the presence of their God. Because this God, by the way, is not fake. There is a real spirit behind this. Faster, more intense. But I love it. And there was no response. And no one answered. And no one paid attention Then Elijah said to all the people, God's people, now come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which was in ruins. Notice this, he's repairing it, no one's helping him. And Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. God's name at this moment will be honored. God's altar will be rebuilt. God's nation is still God's nation, though divided and broken down, because when he calls a person or a nation to himself, they cannot drive him out. This is about God and his name first. Don't forget this. God always acts for his own glory first, and God never lies. So if he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Amen? Verse 32 with stones, he built that altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold 15 liters of liquid. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, I love this. Fill four large jars with water. Pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he said, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down. There was so much of it on the altar, it even filled the trench. I want this to be impossible. I don't want there to be any doubt in anyone's mind. God has acted, not me. Take 12 massive jars, pour it over the altar again and again. And some of you who are thinking, going, well, where are they getting the water? Because it's a terrible famine. Well, amazingly, Mount Carmel is right by the sea. This is salt water, so it's even worse for the situation. This is insane. Unless you have faith the time of evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward, and he prayed. Notice, just him, no others, there's no amen from the people, no white hankies, silence. They were saying, prove it, prove it, and we'll join you. His prayer was simple, full of belief, no screaming, shouting, cutting, no forensic dancing, no endless repetition. He spoke to God, and watch this, C4, please. God heard his own will, not Elijah's. He prays his own promises back to God, and he stands in the gap for a whole nation, and he stood in the gap for an unwilling people. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people know that you, O Lord, are God. I love this. And that you, notice it, and you, say it, you are turning their hearts back again. Prove yourself. Your name is at stake, God. You need to move because it's your reputation, not my reputation. God, you need to move so faith will arise, that unbelief will be broken. God, you must turn their hearts back so lordship will be welcomed in the family again. This is faith-filled. It's life-changing prayer. And he knows something many of us in this room and online don't. God has to act first even to bring his own people back. There must be fire from heaven and there must be rain after the famine from heaven because we don't have the ability to bring the change we desire. What happens? Well, wouldn't this make a great Hollywood film? The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And it was done. God moved and the people were revived. That is, they came back with their whole heart and they worshipped. God's people welcomed his lordship for a season again because his presence became palpable again. Let me say that again. God's people welcomed his lordship again because his presence became palpable again. Elijah commanded them, the whole nation, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let any of them get away, and they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and they slaughtered them there. Happy Thanksgiving. We read this and we're we're so offended. What do you mean they murdered? No, no no, no. <laughs> These people knew who God was, and they rejected him. If someone came to you today and said, we've discovered cancer, and, and we've actually discovered some tissue around the cancer is infected. If we operate today, we can get it all, and you'll live. You would not say to the doctor, well, maybe a minor surgery. You would not say, well, I'm not, no, you'd say, I want life. Elijah understood that Baal and Asherah had to die among his people. And the people that were promoting an anti God movement had to die. Am I saying that? No, 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 no. But understand this is all or nothing. But have you noticed? God's shown up, the people's hearts are turned, but there's still no rain. There's no rain yet. The land is still parched and dying. What happens next? The rain came after Elijah prayed seven more times. He cried out. It's when intercessors called. He travailed. He was desperate for God's move upon the whole land, which would bring life. Why? Because the rain was promised. Verse 42, Elijah went back up to Mount Carmel, bent his knees to the ground, I love this, and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go look at the sea. And he went and looked, there's nothing there. He did this seven times, and finally the seventh time the servant reported, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising in the sea. Now, he could have said, is that it? No, no, he understood Verse 45, and then the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and the heavy rain came, and fire turned the people back. There was rain on the land again. There was rejoicing The people were saved. Lordship was rebuilt, and the land produced because God, not Baal, had proven himself. We believe as Christians in a a loving, personal God. We believe that God, through Jesus, sets us free from all that we're in bondage to. And we believe that living under his love and lordship is the best thing because he is trustworthy, he is love, and he wants us to be free. And yet I need to end this message this way. And this is when I need everyone to really take notice. What are you believing for your family in this church when it comes to the lordship of Jesus? The answer has to be only one thing. Fire from heaven and Rain. I give you this challenge this morning as the senior pastor of this church and a fellow journeyer, and I give you also this commission. The image of an altar being broken down is true of many of our families and large parts of our church. Why? It's not just because of life. It's because of the rejection of the lordship of Jesus. And the question I ask you on this Thanksgiving is, are you desperate enough for this to change? Well, how does this happen? Well, here's the challenge. For us to have an authentic conversation about a new move of God among us, we have to have the courage, we who know God, have to have the courage to go back to God whom we love and trust supposedly and say, am I the one worshipping Baal? Is it me? The heart is deceitful above all things and you may be kissing the mouth of Baal or laying down in front of Asherah and you don't even know it. If you want to see a new thing in your family, you start with you. If you want to see a new thing in your church, I start with me as the leader of this church. You see, here's the heart of this. Idolatry is yoking ourselves to other things that bring death. Idolatry is expressed in three ways in a local church. The first one is religious idolatry. Some of you come to church week after week. You may be in a connect group, but you still pair yourself with other religious worldviews. You tie your Christianity into Buddhism or Hinduism or parts of Islam or Sufism. Some of you are still involved in your new age. Garbage. You can't worship Jesus and do psychic garbage. You can't. You cannot be involved in crystals or rocks. You can't be reading the secret calling on the knowledge of the universe. No, we call upon the Lord in this church, nothing else. You cannot be involved in other religious practices and still say, I'm a Christian and I'm fine. That is Baal, and he's in your house. You have to come to the place where you say, I will seek only knowledge and power and lordship from the God of heaven and earth found in the face of Jesus, period. Why? Because God's mean? No, because he wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. Life abundant doesn't come from horoscopes, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Life abundant doesn't come when you're feeling so down that you make a vow to Satan on the side because God didn't fill in the blank. No, no, freedom, not that. But it's not just that. Greater forms of idolatry among us have to do with other things. When we use sex, money, or power that are gifts from God, and they're more important than what God says about them. Like I preached a, a few months ago, John, I know that God says I shouldn't have premarital sex, but I love her. Well, then your girlfriend or boyfriend is an idol, and so is your relationship. John, God made me this way. I, I can't give up everything that I am to follow Jesus. G- then your lifestyle is a God. John, I know God called me to surrender this or give more money or time or serve. Sur- well, well, then your excuses are a God. John, come on. I don't have time for Christian community. Don't you understand? Like I, I have a new baby, and then, and then I've got gymnastics. No, then your lifestyle is a God. God is what you love, God is what you seek, God is what you worship, God is what you serve, God is what you allow to control you. Baal is very religious, Baal is very secular. The most serious form of Baal in a church is actually the attitudes and cherished values that hold more power than what God wants to do or has done or is about to do. If you are a person who comes to church and you are militantly self-sufficient, I'm better than everyone else. I don't need help from community. I don't need accountability. Idolatry. If fear is grander than your trust in God, it's idolatry. If you lack the Holy Spirit's power in your life and you've become okay with it, idolatry. If you have allowed things that God has done profoundly in your past, the golden age, to become so large you can't see what God's doing today or tomorrow, idolatry. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. They burst. Idolatry. If you're vain, If you walk in and you say, look at how they dress, or look at their ethnic status, or look how much, if you have a vanity problem, it's idolatry, because you think you're better than others, and all of us need to be in the place where we say to God, I don't want to be this person anymore, set me free, because I want life and life in the full, I want to be a slave to Jesus, help me, O Lord. That has to be the starting point for our conversation among us. Don't point a finger at someone else. Start with yourself and say, God, I trust you because you are a loving father to tell me the truth and I'm ready for you to do any operation you need because I know in the end it's about my joy and my love and my freedom. I love you. Come get me. Don't stop till I'm different. Here's the second thing. Not only must we ask the honest, difficult question, we need to stand in the gap. I'm calling on you and calling on this church to ask God to bring fire and rain on all the desert places in our families and in this church. God promises us that we can have life abundant. He wants to be glorified. God's will is that lordship will be experienced. He wants revival, not because there's lots of people, but because it's what he's promised to do. You can pray, please, please, please hear this. You can pray, see, for with power and with belief that, and faith that God will do this. God does not say he will give you a new car. I'm sorry. God does not promise he may heal us physically in this life or even mentally. God does not promise that because we were bad with our finances, he's going to wipe out all our debts. But he will always say yes to lordship. I, I cannot preach this as much. I've struggled so all week. To see your life, to see your actual family, to see this church change radically, it will take heaven. The water has been poured so much over the wood because of pain and sin and history that if God does not move, nothing will change. That we as a church would pray with faith, that we would pray until he moves, that we would pray that our head is between our knees begging God for fire and rain and asking God to vindicate his name in our family and vindicate his name in this church. We are praying this over people already given to God. This is not a prayer meeting about those who don't know him yet. God has to act first and then the hearts of his people will be turned back. Here's the reason why many of you are not Elijah in this church. Because you believe God could do this. You believe God has the ability to bring fire and change. You know he has the ability to bring life where there is desert. But you're not sure he's going to. Or you're not sure if you want him to. So you don't ask. But in the case of lordship, in the case of his own people submitting to Jesus... That is God's will revealed in the scriptures. This is what I'm saying as the pastor of C4, you get to name and claim something. It's the first time I've ever said it. You can name and claim the lordship of Jesus. You no longer can believe that he might do this or he sort of wants to do this. No, Jesus of Nazareth wants his lordship in our church. Jesus of Nazareth wants his lordship in your family because he wants it because it brings life and life abundant. As Jesus taught in Mark eleven twenty three, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt, does not doubt, does not doubt in their hearts and believes what they've said, it will happen and it will be done. Why? Because whatever you ask for in prayer and believe you've received it, it will be yours. This is not talking about being rich. This is not talking about cars. This is talking about what do we know God's will is and claiming it. So I declare for myself and for my wife, Joe, and my family in this church, I believe in my heart that God will do the lordship thing of Jesus among us. Because at its heart is freedom. So I'm asking this church one thing. Ask if you're a Baal worshiper. Because if you do, he'll say yes or no. And then lovingly, he'll turn your heart back. And then say, oh Lord, make me Elijah. Help me to pray in a way I have never prayed for those who are Christians in my family and for my church because I want to see something that's beyond smoke and lights and the usual. I want to see God show up and I want people to be in awe, not of C4, not of John, not of the elders, not of the programs. I want to see people in awe of God found in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I want there to be known that there's a God in C4. I want Durham to know in GTA there is really a God you can know. This has begun in our church a little bit. And so, Lord, help our technology at this moment to work. We film the family in our church. A normal family, one of us. Lots of trouble. Lots of honesty. Things aren't perfect now. Things are just sort of normally dysfunctional now. <laughs> but I want you to watch this because... This is the story of a mom and dad who begged God for Jesus' lordship. And it happened. Watch this as we end our service. And so, uh, as we get ready to respond with this last song, let me pray the, pra- pray the prayer. That Elijah prayed for a people, and I suppose I would ask you, in your connect groups as you get the forms as you leave today, I suppose I would ask you in your prayer times if you would consider committing praying this for your family and our church until it happens. First Kings eighteen thirty six. O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in our families and God at C4. That I am your servant and done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. O God, on this thanksgiving, that we are deeply thankful for many things, life, health, food, family. We ask in faith for families to be deeply and radically changed, for prodigals to come home, and for our church to be so on fire and for rain to come upon us. life we've never seen We desire these things so you will be vindicated and we will have freedom. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer today. Prompt us to pray. Help us to pray until it comes. Thank you that you are faithful and we are not. God, bring down Baal in our midst. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com.